Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today's guest is Terry Lovelace. Terry was a medic in the United States Air Force... And later in life, he got his law degree and became the assistant attorney general for the state of Vermont. He is also author of the book Incident at Devil's Den, the true story of his 1977 abduction from the Arkansas State Park. And he's had alien implants. Or actually, I should say he still has one. Terry, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you giving me your time. Well, thank you for having me, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. Mm hmm. All right. So uh, can we just first start with how your alien abduction happened in 1977? Sure, sure. When I got out of high school in 1973, I enlisted in the uh, United States Air Force and was trained as a medic, EMT, first responder, um, stationed at Whiteman Air Force Base west of Kansas City and worked the night shift in the ER, drove an ambulance. And my good friend who I worked with, I refer to as Tobias in the book, Toby and I were uh, workmates and best of friends. And uh, he came to me one night and said, hey, man, I got an idea. Let's go camping. <laughs> and that was, I thought it was a joke at first because we were both city kids. I grew up in St. Louis City. He grew up in Flint. Neither one of us had ever been camping before. Mm-hmm. Um, but he talked it up. I had a new camera. I wanted to photograph some wildlife. So I said, sure, let's, let, let's go. So we made plans. We were going to do two overnights. We packed up, packed the car, and we drove down six and a half hours from Whiteman Air Force Base to uh, Devil's Den State Park, which I didn't know at the time has a long history of odd disappearances and mm. crazy stuff. Mm. Uh, more, more than I can go into here, but uh, David Politis, if you're familiar with his work, in the fourth volume of his Missing 411 series, the book is called The Devil is in the Details. And Devilston State Park is, uh, is is well represented in his book. Not with my story, but with plenty of others. Now, this is not Devil's Tower, which is featured in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. This is Devil's Den Park, right? Correct. Right. Different park, Northwest Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Um, and the name Devil, there, there are hundreds of places you wouldn't believe. I mean, uh, Devil's Den, Devil's Glade, Devil's Lake, Devil's Forest, Devil's, you know, on and mm-hmm. on and on. Mm-hmm. So it's a fairly common name. Uh, and David Politis in his research discovered that places that have the name Devil in them have a disproportionate number of people go missing hmm. uh, from just a purely statistical standpoint than parks with other names. So uh, I wonder what came first, the devil or the disappearance? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, I, again, I don't have time to go into it, but I researched the history of Devil's Den because I wanted to find out what was the genesis of that. How did it get that name? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's kind of crazy, but uh, the long and the short of it is my friend Toby knew of an elevated plateau that he'd heard about from a friend. And his interest in this exercise was he wanted to watch the night sky without light pollution. Uh, he was an amateur astronomer mm-hmm. and uh, 
um, a math genius. Uh, you know, he was going to, I was going to go finish my degree undergrad and then go to law school. He was going to get a degree in physics and then on to astronomy or cosmology in graduate school. But, uh, so he wanted to watch the night sky. So we drove down and we, uh, we dodged the ranger station because we didn't want to stay in a campground. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we drove toward this plateau and there was a chain across the road with the stern warning, no, no admittance, keep out, uh, no hunting, fishing, hiking, camping, you know, uh, that kind of thing. And uh, I thought, well, you know, I guess we got to turn around. My, my buddy's like, no, 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 wait a minute. And he hopped out of the car. He was keen enough to notice that they just taken the chain and looped it around with a padlock and made like a noose and draped it over this post on his side of the, the road on a nail. Mm-hmm. So he hops out, he picks it up, he drops it. Boom. We drive right in. Right. And we're like over the moon, man. We are really psyched. We feel like Lewis and Clark, you know, mm-hmm. and we make our way uh, to this plateau and there's just a dirt road that goes up. And we took the dirt road, went up and crested the hill. And it was just awesome. I mean, it was absolutely gorgeous. Uh, the, you know, late blooming wildflowers and grass just about halfway up your knee. And it was just a pretty place. And we were high enough that we were, we were level with the treetops of the forest. Wow. So plenty of opportunity to photograph eagles and the like. Uh, set up a little campground right on the tree line. Um, you know, put a tent together and we took a little hike, did some other stuff, did the usual things you do when you go camping, I guess. I'd only been once. I've certainly never been since. And built a little campfire. And by about nine o'clock at night, we're kicked back on these air mattresses. We got some uh, blankets that we took from the hospital and we're uh, just sitting around talking and You know, this part of the story sounds so cliche, it's almost an embarrassment to say it, but it's true. And that is that the the noises of the forest, the crickets, the tree frogs, all the stuff that makes noise in a forest at night, um, that all fell silent. And I mean, it was it was a noticeable difference because we had to raise our voices to be heard by one another over the campfire. And uh, it unnerved me. And I asked my friend, you know, like he would know, right? But I asked him anyway. I said, is this is this normal, you know, for it to be this quiet? And he's like, yeah, you know, look, we've been laughing. And he made a good point. We've been laughing and, and cutting up and we've just quieted them. He said, give them a while. They'll be back. And I'm like, okay. Um, but honestly, had I been there by myself, I'd have been, I'd have been caught. Mm. But uh, I didn't, I didn't want to do that. So um, we carried on some conversation. You're going to ask something? I was going to say, so all of a sudden, I mean, it is like just dead quiet. Not a sound. I mean, I can understand, you know, crickets sometimes go in patterns, but I mean, there was just like a, not a sound for miles, just sound. Absolutely not. It was like being, you know what it was like? It was like being in a, in a sound booth. Yeah. Like an audiologist sound booth. Hmm. Uh, and not only was it quiet, but it was still and that we had a little bit of a breeze because it was June. It was kind of a hot day. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a little bit of a breeze and the breeze had stopped. Mm. And um, so it was both quiet and still. Uh, we were in an odd place is all I can say. I, it, it, it felt spooky to me. Sure. Um, 
So anyway, we we carry on with with our conversation. And uh, then I noticed that my friend Toby has his head turned to the left and he's looking at something and I'm about to ask him, hey, what are you looking at? And he asked me, he says, hey, Terry, were those lights there before? And I'm like, what lights? What are you talking about? Because we're both seated on these air mattresses. I can't see what he's looking at because his torso is hiding it. So I kind of half stood and took a step back. And then I could see right on the horizon, it would have been the Western horizon. There was this tight little triangle of three stars. Uh, and each star being the same luminosity, they were all the same brightness, about, about as bright as the North star. So they were pretty bright. Wow. Um, and they were too far off the horizon to have been lights like from a train or a parking lot or something. So we're looking at those and we're, we're not fearful. We're just inquisitive. And um, I suggested, well, maybe it could be an airplane, although we didn't know anything that had that triangular type configuration. Uh, we know a little about aircraft. And uh, I said, maybe it's an aircraft, but it's headed right in our direction. So it's just an illusion that it's standing still. And in a moment or two, it'll change course by a degree or two, and we'll, we'll see it from a different angle. Well, we waited and we watched a few minutes and, and it didn't change. It just stayed static in the air. And then it did move. It, what it did was at first it rotated and it turned like it were on an axis. And it turned about almost all the way around, maybe 320 degrees. Uh, and it oriented itself, oriented itself so that the base of the triangle was parallel with the horizon. And um, we we got pretty excited about that. Mm. And uh, then it started to go up into the air just seconds later. And as it climbed up into the air, I felt a noticeable sense of sedation. Mm. And I mean, uh, it was like a dose of Versed or something. I was, I was just in a weird place. I mean, I... Uh, I was mildly disinterested. I wouldn't say I was apathetic, um, but I felt removed from from this, whatever was going on. It felt more like I was a participant rather than, or an observer rather than a participant in the events. It's the best way I know to explain it. But no fear, no agitation. And we're just watching this thing move up into the sky. Now, this night, it was like there were trillion stars out. It was a beautiful evening. And the sky itself from the starlight had kind of a bluish tint to it. And we could see that the area inside this triangle was, was jet black. Mm. And it expanded and got larger. And, you know, the stars always remained equidistant to one another. It was obviously it was one solid object, not, you know, three objects moving in unison. And it sure enough, it would go over. Um, it would go past stars and they would blink out until it had moved past. So it was obviously in our atmosphere, not out in space somewhere. And it climbed uh, straight up and did a pretty good clip and reached what I call a ceiling and then seemed to level out. And then it turned and did a descent and it was almost like a glide uh, in our direction. And it was clear this thing was coming toward us. And um, no fear, uh, just 
just uh, we're just watching it. No conversation between the two of us. I think the only thing I remember my friend saying was, hey, it's really moving now. That was it. That's the only thing that I think that was said. I don't recall answering him. I'm pretty sure. So that we it. saw this thing. Uh, let me stop you there. I was going to ask. Yeah. The, the craft didn't have any sound, did it? No, not at this point. We, we heard nothing at all. Hmm. Uh, we saw just the lights on the points of each each point of the triangle. And those dimmed. Uh, as it got low, those, those lights dimmed. Um, and then it leveled out at about 5,000 feet and came in uh, from the west. And we could see it from our vantage point over the treetops. We could see it move across the top of the forest. Uh, and the... Uh, little illumination at each point of the triangle reflected in the trees. So it came in at about 5,000 and then dropped a little lower and leveled off at, this is an estimate, but I think it's a pretty good one, at about 3,000 feet over our heads. Hmm. And this thing filled that entire, that entire area, that entire little meadow. I don't know if I sent you photographs or not, but um, uh, this place where we stayed is still there. And, uh, I, I didn't bother to look for it on Google Earth. I thought, well, surely this thing is covered with 40-year-old mature trees by now. Uh, but it's not. It's, it's, um, it's clear cut. You did send me the, the, I guess it's from Google Earth or something, a picture of the clearing where you were at. Yes. So I can show yes. people that. And that's interesting that that, that that clearing is even there. It's even, and it's clear cut. It's, yeah. it, somebody takes what, what I was told was a brush hog. A, a friend on Facebook of mine is a landscaper mm-hmm. and he blew it up and he said, I can see the, the tire tractor marks in, in the soil. He said, somebody cuts that with a tractor. Hmm. So for, and also the second discovery that I made recently was that it actually isn't in Devil's Den State Park. It's actually on federal land. Uh, when we cross that chain in the road, this is federally maintained property. Uh, I believe by the Bureau of Land Management, which means it could be, you know, owned by anybody federally, mm-hmm. but it's still off limits. Uh, mm-hmm. So I don't know why the U.S. government would pay for gas for a tractor for 40 years to cut the top of a plateau in the middle of nowhere. Right. That's what they do. Yeah. So this thing leveled out at 5,000, no, pardon me, 3,000 feet over our heads. Mm-hmm. And, um, as I said, the lights had dimmed on each point of the triangle, and we can't see the underside of it clearly. Uh, it's just a big black triangle, uh, and we had no idea about its depth until later. But we're looking at this thing, and out of the center, uh, right underneath and below, there came a beam of light uh, about, about the same diameter as a softball, and it was a white light. It was a visible light, you know, like a, like a searchlight that cuts through fog. You see a white column. That's what this was. It was a visible column of white light. But, of course, there was no fog. Uh, and it landed right in the middle of our campfire or what was left of our campfire. And we looked at one another and looked at it and just kind of like, I don't know, uh, and weren't, weren't, weren't too, uh, too excited about it. Mm-hmm. Again, we were in kind of observer mode and, and mildly sedated. Mm-hmm. And uh, that lasted for maybe 60 seconds. 
and then it just like someone hits a switch, it turns off. Then immediately and instead there came this laser light and I had never seen a laser before except on television. This was 1977. There came a laser about the diameter of a pencil and it would go from the center and underneath of this thing and it would flash and land at one spot in our campsite and stay there for a tenth of a second and then turn off and then move to another spot so that it would move and have a different location like 10 times a second. So it gave this illusion that it was dancing and moving all around our campsite. Mm -hmm. And it struck everything. It struck the cooler, the tent, struck me in the chest twice. I never felt anything. I know it struck my friend, our car. And I remember thinking, this thing's, you know, scanning us. It's checking us out. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm sure I'm probably right about that. Was the laser like a beam or like a laser pointer where you just see the dot on the ground? No, we could see the beam. We could see a bluish purple beam. And matter of fact, even though it was just pencil thin, it was bright enough that we could still trace it all the way back up Hmm. to the source. Hmm. So it was, it was, it was bright. It was intense. Um, And that lasted for maybe three minutes. And then just like someone hits a switch that turns off. And then I felt, um, this mild sedation that I had felt shifted to a feeling of um, I wanted to go to sleep. I mm. just wanted to go to sleep. And I mean, it was a compulsion. I had to go to sleep. And that was unusual because, you know, we're two guys. We're 20, you know, I'm 22. He's 23. We're in good shape. We're used to working the night shift. We're used to working from 11 p.m. to 8 a.m. Mm-hmm. So this was mid-afternoon for us. Uh, we should not have been sleepy. We had every right to be tired, maybe, but not not sleepy like we were. So my friend stood up and went over to the tent and threw his air, his air mattress in and just kind of dove on top of it. And I followed suit. And I'm just thinking, got to go to bed. <laughs> uh, I didn't bother to take off my shirt. I didn't bother to unlace my uh, – I wore combat boots. I didn't bother to take my boots off, uh, which would – come into play that fact would come into play later but i didn't i didn't bother to undress in any way i just threw the air mattress in and i dove in and i fell on top of it and i my last thought was toby was wrong because the crickets and the tree frogs never did come back Mm -hmm. um but that was okay i wasn't uh i wasn't uh freaked out about it anymore and i was out i was asleep and i don't know i can't tell how long exactly we slept because the watches that we wore um, now this is 1977. We both wore mechanical wind-up watches, mm-hmm. uh, but we wore good watches because being EMTs, it was a, a tool of the trade, so to speak. We, we needed a good watch. Um, so both of our watches had stopped at 2:40. Mine stopped at 2:40 on a nose. Toby stopped at 2:41, um, and those watches never worked again. So you said it stopped sometime. Uh, let me stop you there real quick. Your watch stopped at 2.40. Do you know what time it was when the craft came over and was scanning you? Somewhere between 9 and 10. 9 and um, 10, okay. Until closer to 10. Okay. Closer to 10. You know, 9.45-ish, somewhere in that range. Um, you know, from the moment that we laid eyes on it on the horizon, uh, I think that this thing had some type of influence over us. I, I I truly believe that. I, I mean, it, it uh, for instance, uh, we we didn't take a photograph. Right. Uh, 
and I was, I was an amateur photographer. Mm-hmm. Um, now my, I left my camera at home, but my friend Toby had a, had a camera in his backpack a foot from it. And neither one of us had the thought to take a picture. Uh, and that, that doesn't make sense. So they had, a, had us under some kind of control. Yeah. My thinking but was, I woke up. I was going to say, my mm-hmm. thinking was that the only thing that makes sense is they must've been projecting some kind of energy wave that changed your brain wave, you know, like Delta, they, your, your consciousness can be in like Delta state or alpha state or whatever. And my guess is they were just broadcasting an energy signal that, you know, like hypnotized you. Yeah. And they just dialed it up from alpha to Delta and we went to bed. Right. Yeah. So uh, I woke up uh, and I guess like say, I don't, I didn't have a watch to know what time it was, uh, but I woke up with these intense lights flashing through the canvas of the tent and they were yellow and orange, maybe greenish and white. And they were really intense. They were intense in a way like a 1960s old school flash bulb camera was where you had those bulbs. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you can recall, I can recall as a kid, those flash, the flash going off in my face and you see in a blue dot for an hour after mm-hmm. every time you blink because it was so bright. Um, I mean, it lit up that tent like the inside, like a, like a ballpark at night. It was just lit up, uh, but only for a millisecond while the light flashed and it flashed at odd intervals. Uh, and as I said, different colors. So I wake up and I don't have my wits about me. And I'm thinking, um, well, these must be the overhead flashing lights of a park ranger's truck. That to me was the only thing that made sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you'd ask about a noise earlier. Uh, now, along with these lights, I noticed a sound. And it was a um, a low droning sound. It was a sound like... Um, if you've ever stood next to a big piece of industrial machinery, there is a, a hum to it that's more powerful than it is loud. I mean, you can feel it in your chest. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what this that's what this sounded like. Um, and then I'm thinking, you know, what, is there a park ranger here with a generator in the back of the truck? That doesn't make any sense. Um, so I, I sit up, and that's when one of these flashes of lights, that's when I noticed that my Boots had been unlaced almost all the way down. And I thought, now that doesn't make sense. I mean, they teach you in the military to take care of your feet, right? I, I would I would never have left them like that. I took off one of my boots and my socks were on sideways. Hmm. Um, I didn't know until later we'd been undressed and redressed. Hmm. So I put my socks on correctly. I put my boots on correctly and laced them up. And I realized that I'm having pain. Um specifically joint pain, and I feel feverish and uh, very, very thirsty, very dehydrated. And in one of these flashes of light, I turn my attention to my friend who's to my left, and he's on his knees, and he's looking at something out the, outside the flap of the, out of the flap of the tent on his side. And I'm like, Toby, man, what is it? Is it park rangers? What's out there? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he did the universal finger across the lips thing to be quiet. And uh, in one of these flashes of light, I saw that he had tear tracks down the side of his right face, right side of his face. So he'd been crying. And that shook me up a bit. That, that shook off some of that feeling of sedation and uh, calm that I had. 
and um, I, I was fearful because I couldn't imagine what would make this guy cry. And I got to my knees and I pulled back the flap of my tent just an inch and a half because I'm terrified. I don't know what's out there, but I look out there and I see two things. And that is that this craft thing that we saw over our heads at 5,000 feet had descended. And it's now just 30 feet over this meadow. And I'm just grateful that we had tramped, we had camped on a tree line. Otherwise we'd been underneath the thing. And, and I, I wouldn't have wanted to have been there. And, um, the lights on the points of the triangle are flashing. When they're not flashing, they're still on, but they're dim. There's a dim white light on each point. Um, and the second thing I noticed was what I first took to be kids. Uh, I mean, like maybe 12 or 15 of these kids, and they're all just kind of um, meandering around the meadow. And I asked my friend, I'm like, Toby, man, what are these kids doing out here in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night? Because, I mean, we were in a remote location. And he says, Terry, man, those ain't no little kids. Look at them. They're not human beings. And he said this. He says, don't you remember? They came and they took us and they hurt us. And when he said that, the second he said that, um, I had flashes of memory of being inside this thing. Now, granted, I've never had a clear linear memory of what happened to us, but just bits and pieces, fragments, uh, and more have returned over the years, uh, usually in the form of nightmares first, and then, you know, they form as memories. Um, so I look again, and he's right. These things, whatever they are, are not human. And they are just stereotypical ETs. I mean, they have uh, large heads, uh, disproportionate to their body, a spindly torso, uh, thin limbs, um, and like I say, they're paired up in twos and threes and they're walking around and they're not like they're looking at the ground looking for anything. They're just, they reminded me of tourists. Hmm. You know, they were, look, they were like looking around and, and pointing even. And uh, yeah, uh, and with no sense of urgency, just kind of like meandering, taking their time. And, you know, we're scared to death. You know, we're afraid we're going to make a noise, draw their attention and they're going to come over Uh and we don't know, we didn't know it at the time, but they were long done with us, you mm -hmm. know. So um, while we're watching this thing, there came another beam of light from underneath this thing. And this was a column of white light. And it was about 30 feet in diameter. It was about as wide as this thing was off the ground. And it was a cylinder of white light. And um, as soon as that came on, these little guys turn their attention toward this column of white light and started to walk toward it. Uh, again, not in a rush, just meandering toward the light. And while we're watching these things in twos and threes would step into the light and dissolve, they would just pixelate out and be gone. Hmm. And that was frightening. Um, but in a way we thought, you know, good. Maybe they're leaving. You know, <laughs> maybe it's a good thing. Mm -hmm. And we watched the last two little guys step into the light and dissolve. And as soon as they were gone, this light shuts off. And the humming noise that we'd been hearing, that we'd almost become accustomed to, uh, abruptly stopped. And the lights on the points of the triangle 
shifted from multicolor mm -hmm. to all bright white. Mm -hmm. And while we're watching, this thing took off. We saw it take off. And it didn't take off like a rocket ship. It took off like a hot air balloon. It just lifted up and did a slight rotation thing and kept moving up. And the further up it climbed, the faster it went. So we thought we saw three lights and then one light and then it was gone. Hmm. And uh, we were, we were still, still not sure we were safe. I mean, we didn't know if maybe some of them were still out there. Uh, and I was, uh, I know this sounds odd, but I mean, it was just a piece of canvas over my head, but I didn't want to be out in the open to run to the car because I would feel vulnerable being outside and, Today, to this day, uh, I won't cut across an open field. Um, I'll walk a mile and a half around rather than cut across a place that's out in the open. I don't like open spaces. Mm. Um, so we sat there for probably 30 minutes and um, talked about what whispering, what, what we should do. And my friend kind of took charge and said, look, man, we got to get out of here. He said, just grab your wallet and your keys. I'll grab my flashlight and let's make it to the car and get out of here. I'm like, okay. So we, he did the classic, you know, one, two, three, go. And we ran and we darted the, you know, 60 feet to my car and hopped in. Luckily it started right up. Of course we had to turn the dome light on and check under the seats and the back seat. And um, I asked him, I said, are you sure you can get me out of here without breaking an axle? Mm -hmm. um, but he did, he had an excellent sense of direction. He's like, mm -hmm. no, no problem. I, I, I got this. And uh, he did. He got us back to Blacktop Road and we drove north. And uh, it was odd, too, in that uh, when we went down there, I, I this is really worth mentioning. We were, you know, we were good friends. Our wives were friends. Uh, you know, we worked together on our days off. We maybe play cards or barbecue or something. Um, so something had changed in that. Um, my, my feeling for toward this guy was now less than a friend. Mm. Uh, for some reason, I didn't want anything to do with the guy. Mm. And I really couldn't reconcile that back then. I had trouble reconciling it now. Wow. Um, and uh, he didn't, uh, he didn't have anything to say to me. And, but he was hurting. He was in a lot more pain than I was. Mm. And he was curled up into a ball kind of on the big bench seat of my old Impala. And uh, whatever they did to me, they gave him a double measure because he, he was hurting. And we both had flash burns to the eyes, um, you know, like an arc welder would get if they didn't pull the hood down, you know, like a sunburn to the cornea of your eyes. Very painful. Uh, we noticed as soon as the sun came up, I felt like I had sand in my eyes. It was very painful. I also had this weird sunburn. Uh, weird because I never took my shirt off, never took my pants off uh, during the entire trip, during that entire day. But I was burned all over my body. I was burned under my arms, the mm. soles of my feet. I mean, everywhere I was burned. Uh, but I never peeled and uh, never blistered. But it was, uh, it was real tender to the touch. So, and remember, we, we worked at the hospital. And, you know, medical people take care of their own. You know, I mean, I was embarrassed to go to the hospital. But my wife was like, you need to go to the hospital. And I knew that. Um, and Toby's wife must have said the same thing because we saw his car there. He was there. Mm -hmm. But the Air Force did something unusual. They segregated us. They separated us. They put Toby in one exam room and put me in another. 
Um, and I had the most thorough medical exam, you know, of my Air Force career. And um, toward the end of the exam, uh, these four guys walked into the exam room. It was the hospital commander, who was my boss, the base commander, who I knew by sight, but had never met or had a conversation with. And then two guys I didn't recognize in civilian clothes. And the four of them walked in and the hospital commander said to me, Sergeant Lovelace should have no contact with their uh, partner, with Sergeant Tobias in any way, shape or form. That means not verbally, not by telephone, not in writing, not through any third party. You're not to give him anything. He's not to give you anything. Your wives are to have no contact. Now, I don't know how they can order my wives to have no contact, yeah. uh, but they told me that they could kick, you know, we lived in base housing, so we lived on the base. Mm. And, uh, you know, so they, they had leverage over us. Um, yeah. So when you did get your exam in your personal history, did you tell what had happened to you or you just said, I have these symptoms and I don't know why I have them? Great question. I, I blew over that. Yeah. The only thing that we did discuss on the way back up was what we were going to say. Um, and we were really pretty straight guys. I mean, we had an aversion to lying. So mm-hmm. we knew we couldn't tell the Air Force. Uh, yeah, we saw a UFO the size of Walmart, you know, because mm-hmm. I knew what would happen. We'd be on a psych board. You know, yeah. it'd be a it'd be a discharge from the military. And, yeah. uh, you know, bad things would happen. Mm-hmm. So uh, we agreed that what we would say is we would tell the truth. We would just leave out the middle portion. We'd say we felt really strange, which is true, before bed, went to bed, woke up feeling sick as dogs, and drove home. So that was our story, and we mm-hmm. stuck to it. At least I know that I stuck to it. Right. Um, I, can't, I can't speak for Toby, um, but I know that I stuck to it. Have you spoke to Toby since that incident? One time. Um, and there's a long story about Toby's decline and eventual demise. Mm. Um, when uh, about four weeks after this, they had cut him orders to Japan at light speed. I mean, he was going to be gone in a matter of weeks. Um, and while he was still working at the hospital, they transferred me to a supply unit um, who had no use for a medic. And they had me working in like a carpentry shop uh, by myself, doing nothing, you know, <laughs> doing busy work. Uh, but that that kept us apart, right? Right. Uh, they didn't want us to put our stories together, I'm sure. Right. Uh, so we were coming back from the base exchange one day, and I told my wife, because Toby just lived about four blocks from us. I said, swing by Toby's house. I want to run in. I want to tell the guy goodbye. And she says, you know, I thought you didn't want anything to do with this guy. And I'm like, well, you know, really, I don't. But I I, I feel like I owe him that much. Mm-hmm. And um, she says, well, you know, Terry, don't mess with these. Don't mess with disobeying an order. You know, that, that, that could be big trouble. And I'm like, look, I know it'll be cool. I'll be in there four minutes. I'll be right out. So she acquiesced and pulled over. She was driving. Uh, and I hopped out of the car. I ran up to the door, same same doorway I'd been through a hundred times before. And I, I knocked real loud and just opened the door and said, hey, guys, uh, anybody home? And Toby's wife walked past me and turned and gave me a very hard look and said, you're not supposed to be here. 
And I said, I know, I know. I'm not here to confront anybody. I'm just here. I just want to say goodbye to my friend. Uh, say goodbye to you guys. I know you're going to Japan. And she didn't say anything. She kept walking. But Toby had heard our conversation and came out of the bedroom. He came around the corner and up the hallway. And I was shocked when I saw him because he was he was a train wreck. I mean, he was just, his hair was sideways. Uh, and he was always very meticulous about his appearance. I mean, this is a guy that always had his shoes shined, always had a uniform neatly pressed. Uh, where I was kind of a slob, uh, he, he was he was the opposite. He was just very meticulous about his appearance. Mm. And he was unshaven. He wore a dirty shirt. He was barefoot. And I thought, you know, I'll cut the guy some slack. He is moving, after all, and that is dirty work. Um, I thought I would be glad to see him, but I, I really wasn't. Uh, I felt really awkward. Um, mm. And he walked up to me and I could tell that he didn't feel exactly at ease either, you know, and he got within, you know, a foot and a half of me and he's looking up that he was shorter than I am. He's looking up at me and I could smell vodka on his breath or some kind of liquor. And that was very out of character for Toby because he wasn't a drinker. You know, I mean, if we played cards or barbecued, he might have a can of beer, but that was it. Um, so this was out of character for him and his eyes were bloodshot. And I, I felt it would be appropriate to embrace the guy, but, but I didn't. And I held out my hand at the same time he held out his hand. And we did this, you know, back and forth thing where we finally contacted and made this ineloquent handshake. And um, I said, yeah, I know you guys are going to Japan. I, I just want to wish you well. And he looked up at me and I, he was tearing up and he said, it happened, didn't it, Terry? And I said, yes, my brother, it happened. You're not losing your mind. And he said, yeah, but why us? And I broke my gaze with him and I looked down at my shoes and I said, man, I don't have a clue. Um, and with that, I felt this wave of anxiety and I ran out of the house ran back to the car. And uh, it was odd because I really thought that I would feel better, you know, have yeah. some kind of peace, uh, mm -hmm. but I, it didn't work out that way. Like you were looking so for I got closure. back to my car and went home. Exactly. Yeah. There was a very interesting uh, thing that happened to me when I was in the hospital because they hospitalized me for three days, two nights. And uh, we were in separate rooms. They gave us actually private rooms, which were normally reserved for officers. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, enlisted guys, we should have been out on, a, on an open ward. But uh, I found out later we were classified as acutely ill due to dehydration, mm. So, which is a pretty quick fix. I mean, they just ran IVs through us. But, uh, right. but our eyes, they had to treat our eyes. They uh, kept the lights off in our room because the flash burns to our eyes were mm -hmm. hurt so bad. My night nurse came in and, and was going to give me, because I, I knew everybody there, I knew her. Mm -hmm. She came in with, you know, something to help me sleep. And uh, as she walked in, these two guys followed her and they were in blue business suits and they were cops. I mean, they were, they were plainly police. I mean, I, I mean, I had not had contact with the police to speak of as a kid. I was pretty straight. And, uh, but these guys looked like police. I mean, they had, their, their suit coats were open and I could see a shoulder harness and they walked with this swagger. If that makes sense, they, uh, they walked with an air of authority. 
and uh, they both pulled out badges, showed them to the nurse, and there was two guys, one about 50 and one in his 30s. The guy in his 50s did all the talking, um, and the other guy took notes and was just uh, there. So this major uh, told the nurse, if that's going to sedate Sergeant Lovelace, it's going to have to wait because we need to ask him a couple questions. So um, she turned to walk out, and then he turned to her and said, and shut the door on your way out. Mm. And that kind of shocked me because I thought, you know, what's, what's, what's the need to be rude? You know, can, mm. you know why, why aren't we civil here? Uh, you know, and having worked as a DA over my career for a while, I kind of understand a little about how police and interrogations work. And that was all theatrics. That was mm. no doubt about it. That was to set the tone. They were in authority um, and to intimidate me. And, and it worked. I was thoroughly intimidated. Mm. And they shut the door and the major sat down next to me, uh, pulled a chair up by the head of the bed. And uh, he said, uh, yeah, you and your buddy went on a little camping trip, right? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, and you left all your stuff there, didn't you? And I said, yes, sir, we did. Uh, and we did. We left We left a cooler. We left Toby's backpack, which is how they found us, because it had his address on base and phone number in the backpack. So the park rangers, whenever they found it, mm-hmm. knew how to, how to get a hold of us mm-hmm. or get a hold of the base commander and say, hey, because what they thought, they thought we had set up a temporary camp and then were maybe, you know, had plans on coming back. But that wasn't the case at all. We had no intention of coming back. Um, so the major says to me, he says, they found your little campsite. Um, but my question is, uh, what do you guys got going on down there? You guys got a little marijuana plot down there? Is that what this is all about? Mm-hmm. And that, uh, well, that scared me because 1977, you know, being active duty, being an NCO, if I had been growing marijuana down there, uh, it would have been a trip to Leavenworth. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and then I thought, my God, what if somebody just by happenstance has a little marijuana plot down there and they want to hang it on us? Yeah. So now I'm really, I'm really terrified. Um, and he goes through this, this cross-examination of me, you know, with leading questions. Isn't it true? Didn't you do, uh, you know, very typical. Uh, and um, had me sign some consent forms. I signed a consent to search. He asked me, he says, you don't have, you know, you, you boys aren't growing any marijuana. And I said, no, sir, absolutely not. And he says, well, then you wouldn't mind how I had a look in your home, would you? I mean, just to clear this up, make sure you don't have a big old bag of marijuana. You wouldn't mind that, would you? Mm-hmm. And I thought, yeah, I would mind that a lot. Um, but I knew I didn't have anything contraband wise. So I thought, you know, if I object, I'm going to look guilty. Right. Mm-hmm. So which is not true, of course. But mm-hmm. um, so I signed a consent form and um they took my car and held it for two days. When they gave it back to me, mm-hmm. it was it was clean. It had been clean like it had been detailed, mm. um, which I thought was odd. But they went through my house, scared the hell out of my wife, went into my dark room. I had a little dark room set up where I made black and white prints. Mm-hmm. And there's not much you can do with a camera when you're on a nuclear base. So I had taken some pictures with a telephoto lens of the full moon. Can you believe they took those prints uh, and the negatives? I have no mm-hmm. idea why. And I never, I never got them back. Uh, but anyway, the, the point of the exercise is this, is that the, um, the captain leaves and it's just me and this major in the room and they're winding things up and they're putting things in his briefcase. He's put, putting away his files and whatever. And uh, 
he stands up and my the head of my bed is right next to the door and he puts his hand on the door so nobody can come in without him knowing it. And he gets down right next to my ear. And he had this Louisiana, Alabama, I'm not quite sure accent. And he says, son, I know, and you know, you two knuckleheads stumbled onto something when you were out there, didn't you? And I didn't answer. I, mean, I, I didn't know how to answer. So I didn't say anything. And he says, oh, yeah, you did. He says, I know you did. And uh, I know you know what I'm talking about. And he says, all I want to know is I want your camera and I want your film and I want you to tell me all about what you saw. And I, without thinking, I blurted out, sir, I never took a picture of it, mm. which in legal parlance, is, it's an admission right, right. <laughs> of it. Yeah. So uh, he smiled and he says, uh, well, I, I, I need your film and your camera. And I said, sir, I'm not lying. I never took a picture of anything. And he had kind of dropped the tough guy look for a moment or two. And then he turns back on the tough guy affect and he says, I don't believe you. Hmm. And with that, he was gone. So the point is these guys, I don't know how they knew, but they knew. Um, they knew what we saw. Do you think that they were police or some type of men in black? No, I, I know for a fact that they were police. Uh, they were from the uh, Office of Special Investigation. In the Air Force, they have the security police, which are generic guards and the like. And then there's an investigative branch of the security police called the Office of Special Investigation, or OSI. Um, think of it like in the Navy, you have the NCIS. Mm -hmm. Well, in the Air Force, they have the OSI. So it's the investigative branch of the security police. Uh, but they had valid valid military IDs. The guy was a major, mm -hmm. and I saw the OSI badge. Um, they showed me their credentials. So they, 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 were, they were Air Force. All right. I was just trying to piece it together in my mind. And I guess what had happened was is that the park ranger found your stuff and maybe called the base and said, hey, we got two of your airmen left this on the base. That's exactly right. And then that's kind of how it got to them. Because at first I was confused. I was thinking there were police from the park. And I was like, why would they travel six hours all the way over to Kansas? You know, you know what, our, our, what our mistake was? We did not put that, uh, that keep out sign, that chain. We should have stopped as we were exiting the park and put that chain back up. Oh, um, you guys. That was a tip off that somebody had been back there. Well, I mean, it's under yeah, we were just wanted to put distance between us. Yeah, I mean, it's sensible. You were kind of panicking. You didn't even pack up your stuff. You just got the heck out of there. That's right. We um, never bothered to pack a thing. Over the years, after you came back to, you know, normal life, did you just try to put this all behind you and carry on with your life? Or what did you do? Well, what I did was this. I, um, first and foremost, I mean, I thought I might be court-martialed for something. I mean, I... I had no idea if they had any basis to charge me with any crime, but I'm afraid of these guys. Right. Mm -hmm. So I kept two notebooks. I took one note, kept one notebook with uh, a, a journal, just everything that happened, dates, times, everything I could remember. So I could preserve that if I'd ever needed in a courtroom situation. Mm -hmm. um, and then I kept a separate notebook that had all my recollections from everything that happened 
from the time my friend Toby said, hey, Terry, do you remember those lights over there? So that I had a record of it because mm-hmm. I thought it was important to preserve a record of it. Yeah. Um, and I went as far as I drew, I drew a photo, I drew an image of what we saw. Uh, and that's the same image that I don't think I sent you a copy, but if you go to terrylovelace.com, you can see a picture that I drew uh, in 1978 of this thing. Uh, and actually that was on, on notebook paper. I took it out and when I published the book, I took a piece of art paper and some a ruler and some felt tip pens and drew a very careful image of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look at that, you can see what we saw. It wasn't... Um, I describe it in a book as being a foot, uh, a city block long on each leg of the triangle. And it was five stories tall. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, just, it was like somebody levitated a medical building. I mean, it mm-hmm. was just, just insane. Your, your, your mind rebels at seeing something just mm-hmm. float in the air. Just strange. And did at any point in your life, did you ever request your medical records from that date? From oh, the yeah. exam? And do you have those? And is that part of your book? I have medical records. The holes in my medical records, you can drive a truck through. Hmm. Uh, I have, there's no notation in my medical records for June of 1977, except uh, a date uh, that coincides with the time that they gave me off duty that I complained of lower back pain. Hmm. That's interesting. So, no, no, no comment about, you know, sunburn, you know, hospitalization, burns to the eyes. None of that. It's not mm. in the record. I, guess I had a difficult time getting my x-rays from the VA. VA didn't want to give me my x-rays. Uh, it took me 60 days and to threaten to bring an action in Dallas uh, United States District Court. And I was, I told him, look, I can do that. I know how to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, I want my x-rays. Uh, and they gave me two and uh, found out later they actually had 24 films that they kept. They took those x-rays at the time of your exam that time, right after the incident? No, these, these were done in 2012. Those okay. x-rays that you saw that show mm-hmm. the implants, oh, okay. I had no idea those were there. In 2012, I woke up and had leg pain, knee pain, okay. and it was totally unrelated to the implants. I had a baker cyst. Okay. You know, yes. Mm-hmm. It's benign. It goes away on its own. So, um, but my wife took me to the VA emergency room. They x-rayed my leg and that's when they found these anomalies. And uh, they took a bunch of photos and, and the tech actually called the uh, radiologist to come down and take a look at him himself, mm-hmm. which kind of, he was kind of annoyed at that because that's, that's not how they do it, you know? Right. Uh, so, but he came down and, uh, he, uh, he made a big deal. He walked over to my leg and said, because uh, I told him I'd never had an injury to that leg. And I, other than the skin knee as a kid, I hadn't. Mm-hmm. And he poked me in the leg and said, you're going to have a scar right here. He said, or close. He says, if you've lost or gained weight, that they can migrate, but you have to have a scar there. And I said, I don't have any scars there, Doc. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bless you. Thank you. And uh, he was insistent. So I, I took my pants off again, mm-hmm. and he... Uh, turned the lights on inside the x-ray room, looked at my knee, and uh, there, there is no scar. Mm. And according to him, um, for something to, you know, violate the integrity of, the, of my skin and something to get that deep into my tissue, there should be a scar. Um, but there, there was no scar. 
and that seemed to freak him out a bit. Do you have the path report for that from him? Oh, there's an interesting story behind that. I would love to read that because, you know, usually, Radi- I was going to say usually on a radiology report, they first write up what they see and then they kind of give like a diagnosis. So I'd be curious to just right. see what, what did they see and what was what did he list as a diagnosis? Just probably artifact. No. Uh, originally they did. There were two. Mm-hmm. There were two radiology reports. Mm-hmm. One from the initial radiologist. Um, it came out a week after the encounter at the ER. Mm-hmm. And um, it said, uh, you know, rule out Baker's cyst. And uh, then he said, exam, the exam. He didn't mention the absence of a scar. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, you know, called them anomalies mm-hmm. uh, uh, above and below the knee. Uh, mm-hmm. No, he didn't use the word artifact. He used the word anomalies. Mm-hmm. Um, above and below the knee and uh, a floral pattern artifact below the knee and a square object uh, centimeter in diameter above the knee and lateral. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he said um, impression, abnormal knee. <laughs> that was That's the impression. It. That's so funny. So that was it. So I had pulled that up. You can access your medical records through a portal called My Healthy Vet. Okay. And that's how I was able to see my radiology report. But unfortunately, my printer wasn't working. Oh. So I couldn't print it. Did you at least screenshot so, it? Take a screenshot? You know, I go. Did you at least take I a didn't. screenshot? I didn't think to do that. Darn. I, di- I did not. I wish I had. What I did was I went to Office Max and I bought a, a thing of toner and came home. And two days later, I got my printer working again. I never thought that it would disappear or change, right? I pull it up. There's a different radiology report. Mm. Now, what's interesting is it's not listed as an amended, you know, or a supplemental. Yeah, that's interesting. It looks like it's the original report. Makes no mention of any artifacts whatsoever. And it says, um, uh, you know, same rule out Baker cyst, uh, PA and lateral, you know, I guess the Baker cyst isn't, you can't discern it on a piece of x-ray film, but uh, I guess the absence of seeing anything there um, because he, he, it didn't say that there was a Baker cyst present, although they told me that was my diagnosis. Uh, but the impression on the radiology report was just abnormal knee. Now that's even with the second report as well. That's with the second report as well. Okay. So that's how you discovered it. You discovered it because you just had random knee pain, went to the doctor, got the films, and that's how you found out about it, right? Yeah. Now, did you? You know, you know what's interesting is is I was a runner when I got out of when I got out of the military in 1979. I started running uh, because you know students as a student you put on weight, so mm-hmm. I, I wanted to control my weight. So I started running and, mm-hmm. and uh, kind of got hooked on it. I liked the endorphins and. Uh, I just, uh, I didn't run marathons, but I ran almost every day. I'd run three or four miles, maybe five on a good day. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that every time I would hit the two mile mark in my run, I mean, give or take 50 yards, there was a spot on my knee, just above and lateral that would go numb and it'd go numb and kind of itchy. And I asked my doctor about it and she says, ah, sounds like some kind of histemic reaction. She says, it doesn't interfere with your run. I wouldn't worry about it. Mm. Uh, so I didn't. 
But as soon as I saw that x-ray, it, it struck me, it hit me that this thing that was above my knee lay directly underneath that spot that would go numb when I used to run. Hmm. And I mean, it would be numb and I could take a pen and, you know, delineate the outline of it. And it was perfectly circular and it was dead numb. That would wear off after about 20, 30 minutes mm-hmm. um, after I completed my run. Mm-hmm. So have you had either one of them removed? No. Uh, the one below my leg, the florette pattern thing, is still there. Uh, it's visible on the 2017 x-ray. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the one above my knee was removed by, in the middle of the night, I assume by E.T., uh, as hard as that is to believe, but that's what I think. Mm-hmm. And that was the catalyst for me to go out and find somebody who could give me an x-ray. And mm-hmm. uh, and I have those films. I keep them handy. I, I mm-hmm. wish there was some way. Uh, but I don't think you could see anything. Mm-hmm. I don't think that you could see anything over. Over here. You can hold them up. I can take a look. Now, what year did you come out with your book? Uh, I published it on Amazon. Self-published it in March. Of 2018. It took you a while to finally come out. You know, were you afraid to publish it for so long or you decided not to, you got, did you get more curious once you found out about the implants in your knee? Yeah, it was the 2012 discovery of the implants that really Mm -hmm. brought this thing to a forefront. And what it did was it just kicked up my anxiety and my, um, my, um, sure. PTSD. Yeah, of Uh, course. You know, it, and it, my, uh, nightmares, Nightmares began again, and uh, right. let me let me plug this in. I think I can use my phone to backlight this X-ray and show you those two tiny wires that I spoke about. While you are doing that, did you wait until you retired from work to publish your book, is or what? Yeah, oh, yes. That? Is that why you did so people wouldn't think, you know, you were already an attorney general? Did you just, that would probably make you lose your job or something? That would, absolutely. There's no, there's no doubt I would have lost my job. Wow. Uh, you know, I, I, it's a fair exchange, I guess. I mean, I, I lost peers and colleagues and friends in the legal community uh, who simply washed their hands of me. Uh, you mean once you said, published? Uh, yeah. My gosh. You know, what is wrong with you? Are you nuts? Have you lost your mind? You know? That kind of stuff. That's that's so strange. But, you know, on the the flip side of that is, um, you know, I've, uh, well, you know, they're they're legal people, you know. Lawyers are all about evidence and proof. And, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, like Carl Sagan said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. I don't know if you can see that. Uh, hmm. Can you see the femur? Uh, I think you got too much light on it. Pull it back. Pull, Pull back your light source. Okay. Can you hold your x-ray up higher? Yes. Okay. I'm seeing your femur now. Now pull your, pull your light source back. You think you're still too close. It's a long, it'll be on, for me, it's on my right side. For you, maybe your left side. Is well, it's it right? Long. It's right under the light. It's kind see? of long. Right? If you can see my finger. Yeah, right I see here. that. Yeah, right. I see that. Yeah, I can see, see that. See that white streak? Yes. That is On a, x-ray film, those are two tiny wires parallel right, to one another. Right. So, and if you look down here, you can see the things in my, below my knee are still there. 
That's the florette pattern. I don't know if you can uh, see those or not. Okay, hold on one second. Um, pull pull the X-ray up higher, please. Okay, the, and a little bit more. And that's it right there, right? Right where the light is? Yes. Okay, yeah. Okay, got that. There's a guy that um, I, I don't know what his degree is in, but uh, he claims to be able to locate uh, implants in people. Mm-hmm. And he's written a book, and he makes the rounds at the uh, at the uh, UFO conferences. Mm. Steve Cornell, Corbell, something like that. Yeah, I don't know him. Anyway, I saw him at a UFO conference in San Francisco in February this year, and uh, I had never I heard of him, but I'd never met him before. So I went over and shook his hand, and he said, "Oh yeah," he said, I, "I've heard your story." He said, "If you'd like, I'll uh, I'll see if you've got any more implants in you." Mm. And I said. You can do that, huh? He says, oh, yeah, I can do that. So what he did was he ran all these uh, Geiger counters. He ran machines all over my body and uh, didn't take any x-rays, obviously. But uh, um, And without a lot of explanation, I mean, I don't know how much of my story he was aware of. um, But in my right calf muscle, he says there's a highly magnetic area in your right calf muscle. And I said, well, that, that's interesting. I said, I've got this florette pattern of uh, the radiologist that night at the VA told me that these things, his exact words were, they're the consistency of bone. Yeah. But he said, but I don't normally see bone tissue sprout in the middle of a muscle. Those are his exact words. So I told this guy, I said, there's supposed to be the consistency of bone tissue. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, they can magnetize anything. So they can magnetize a piece of wood. But he says, you definitely have something. And he showed me a a meter that, you know, with the thing pegging. And I, I don't know what it meant, but he said it means that whatever is in your calf muscle is magnetic. Right. Well, I'm not a radiologist and I don't have anywhere near the experience that they do. But for what I can remember, I think sometimes you can get calcification in the muscle, but I don't think it looks anything like that. It's just kind of a lump of bone maybe in the shape of a muscle. It's kind of long and straight and not in a pattern like that. That, that, That's what he said. That's a very peculiar pattern, what you put in there. So that's very interesting. Um, Can you tell me about when did you feel like the ETs removed that other implant from your leg? When was that? And so that was November 17th, 2017. I woke up in the morning. Okay. 2017, mm-hmm. uh, about five months before I published the book. Right. And I had terrible pain um, mm-hmm. in my leg. Mm-hmm. Woke up uh, an hour earlier than I used to do. But I have mm-hmm. no memory. I have no dreams. I mm-hmm. have nothing to recall what happened that night. But obviously mm-hmm. something happened to me because right. I went to bed fine and I woke up and I wasn't uh, wasn't mm-hmm. fine. Mm-hmm. And you woke up the next day, you saw like some kind of tissue wound on your leg and you were in a lot of pain. Yeah. I, as soon as I woke up, I was in pain mm-hmm. and, um, I, you know, climbed out of bed and, uh, looked below my shorts and pulled them up and the, yeah, there was a, a puncture wound. Mm. Um, and, uh, after about 24, maybe a little more, maybe more like 36 hours, this bruise pattern appeared around both of those puncture wounds on both legs that, mm-hmm. um, that actually was in a florette pattern. It's weird. Mm, yeah. Uh, I also don't understand if they removed the thing down by my leg 
why would they do it all the way up, uh, you know, the top of my leg? Seems odd. I'm confused. The wound where they, the puncture room, was it lower below your knee? And but the other, because the other one I think was above your knee. Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, actually, yeah. The hang on just a second. I'll show you. Okay. Oh. Um, by the way, before I hope you, you can see this, there's a picture of me with a towel over my groin. Okay. And at the top of both of my legs, there is a. Um, a florette pattern of bruising mm-hmm. with so, a little dot in the middle. Right. I see that. That's the puncture wound. I'm guessing you had something in your other leg and didn't even know about it because why was the other leg treated? That's right. And I had never had that leg x-rayed. Yeah. So mm. that tells me that I probably had them in both legs. Maybe they didn't place it well in your right leg and that's how you found out about it. They did a sloppy well, job. Well, actually, no. It was it was that Baker's cyst. Actually, they oh. probably, you know. Oh, yeah. But for that Baker's cyst, I, I would never have had that leg x-rayed. Right. So. Have you got hypnotized to see if you can catch any more memories and, and sort out what happened? Yeah. Um, I've only been hypnotized once by a board-certified radio, pardon me, psychiatrist, who's mm-hmm. absolutely a friend of mine here in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Um. I had an event happen in April, April 16th, 2019. Mm-hmm. Um, I sleep with an iPhone in my pocket with earbuds to listen to meditative apps. Right. I slept that way back to when in the eighties, I used uh, a Walkman. Right. Just because I'm not comfortable in a dark room. Right. You know, I sleep with the lights on. I, I got to have ambient music. If I hear noises, I, I freak out. Sure. Uh, so that's how I sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, on April 16, 2019, I woke up at 5.55 a.m. And I was out of breath. Uh, I, I was tachycardic. Uh, I thought I was having some kind of cardiac event, but I didn't have any chest pain. But I told my wife, you better call an ambulance because something's going on. And uh, I had a mild sweat and uh, they came, they got me, they took me to the hospital. And I mean, I know the drill, you know, cardiac enzymes, EKG, chest Mm -hmm. x-ray. And about as soon as I got to the hospital, my my pulse rate dropped. uh, And the oximeter, I was at at like 94 instead of at 99 or 100. Uh, My blood pressure was high. It dropped back to normal. Uh, Within about 45 minutes, I was back pretty back normal back to myself. So cardiologist kept me there about seven hours on a monitor and said, I, I'm, I'm not going to keep you overnight to monitor you. He said, I'm going to kick you out. But he said, I'm you know, going to suggest that you talk to your cardiologist at the VA. This was a Methodist hospital I went to mm-hmm. and, you know, see about maybe getting a halter monitor. You may have had an arrhythmia or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but he says, I, I, I can't find anything wrong with you. Mm-hmm. And there was no change in my EKG that they were able to pull up the one from the VA that I had, you know, eight months prior. Um, so they cut me loose. But the point is when I got home, I had, um, um, had dinner as usual, went for a walk. And, um, cause that was my normal routine was to walk about a mile after uh, my meal. And my iPhone showed that I had climbed six flights of stairs at 
five between 523 and 524 a.m. I don't know if you have an iPhone. I have an iPhone 6. I, I don't anymore. I used to, but what do you, did you have some kind of app that monitors your walking every day or something? Yes. I just sent you a copy of it. Uh, It, um, it tells how long I, uh, it tells how far I walk. It's a typical health app. Mm -hmm. You know, the number of steps that you've taken, your cumulative total for the day expressed in, you know, miles. Are, are, are fractions of miles. Um, and it also has stairs that you climb. Well, I, I mean, normally, unless I'm parked in a parking garage, I never never really register stairs because, you know, I live in a Texas ranch. I've got one step in my entire house. That's my threshold with the front door. Um, I took this to T-Mobile and to Apple. Both of them checked it out and uh, there was no problem with the phone. They didn't find any malfunction. Mm. Um, but what they said was that, that, cause normally, I mean, I climb stairs like at a parking garage. I might climb four flights of stairs and that would have a normally because at the X uh, axis below, it would have like a stair step type readout, uh, in 10 foot increments as I went up and climbed each flight. Uh, that doesn't have that. That shows that I climbed the six flights of stairs within one minute. Yeah, that's odd. I have no stairs, and I, I cert- if I did, I certainly couldn't climb six flights in a minute. Right. I, I think I was taken that night. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like you just got beamed up. Yeah. Wow. So my, my friend uh, put me under hypnosis. This was in January. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that was- I got uh, – I had a little trouble um, getting – you know, under getting into that place. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I eventually did. Mm -hmm. And um, because of my heart problems, he had me on a blood pressure cuff and uh, kept a pretty good eye on me. And what I remembered was, and I can see it in my mind's eye now, uh, after he pulled it up from my memory with this hypnosis session. But I remember lying in bed uh, because when I got back, my, my earbuds were on my chest, but my phone was still in my pocket. Mm-hmm. I recall going up and going through a dark place, which I think was my attic, popping out of the roof, and it was just breaking dawn. It, it was a beautiful morning, you know, still stars out, but, you know, mm-hmm. a little bit light. And directly above me is a saucer, probably 50 feet in diameter. And probably 60 feet above me. Mm-hmm. And um, the bottom of it opened like a, like a uh, mechanical camera lens, mm-hmm. you know, would open. And it was black. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, uh, my blood pressure went crazy. And he said, you know, we're going to, we're going to call this quits for the day. Right. With the intention, uh, this was in January with the intention of, picking it up again in a week or two. Um, but then I went to, I had to go to San Francisco for this conference. I got mm-hmm. back. I had this, I had that. Then, then COVID got crazy. Um, you know, my friend is an MD. He doesn't want to be around anybody. Um, right. He does his psychiatric practice uh, via Zoom. Right. Now. right. So 
Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, Terry, you So have, as soon as things get better, yeah. I'm going to have a sec another session. No, I think it would be great. I think from what I've heard, I don't remember his name. Um I, I, there's a guy that has done a lot of research hypnotizing people, and from what he was saying, it takes you know, three, four, five sessions, but after the four or five sessions, the person learns how to relax and they get more and more accurate information each time. Yes. My, so. my, my psychiatrist friend actually stumbled onto this. Mm -hmm. He, uh, you know, he was taught in medical school, people that say they've been abducted or seen UFOs are delusional, that that's a symptom. Right. Uh, but he, he said after, you know, 30 years of practice in medicine, he said, I found out that you know, these people aren't delusional. They're, they don't have any other, uh, mm -hmm. they don't have mental illness. They don't have any personality disorder that would account for it. Mm -hmm. And he said, I just, I believe them. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of the recent news article out about the Israeli defense minister or something coming out and saying that UFOs are real and there's some kind of like galactic federation or something and humans are just not ready for it? Have you heard about that? What is your opinion on yeah. that? Uh, my opinion on that is that uh, I read the article the day it came out. Uh, I read uh, the Jerusalem Post mm. often, okay. and uh, I have friends in Israel. Mm. And um, I read the article in the Jerusalem Post, and what, uh, which I think is the best stated story, because uh, it's been in Forbes, it's been all over. Mm. Um, and they, they quoted him. I mean, if, if you talk to an Israeli citizen, mm -hmm. if you talk to someone who lives in Jerusalem, I mean, or, I mean he's well-known. Mm -hmm. He's well-known. He's well-respected uh, as being a general and an academic. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the guy is very well-spoken. He's 81 years old, but he's not demented. I mean, he's, you know, as sound as you or I. Um, and I, yeah, I read the entire article. And I'll tell you what really interested me was that he said that the, um, the hesitation in, in getting this topic out in the open is that the public doesn't understand, and this is a quote, the nature of space and spaceships. So when I take the article in its totality, it's that objection that is the reason that it, that it should be kept under wraps. So it makes me wonder what is there about the nature of space and spaceships yeah. that could be so inflammatory or insightful, you know, the trigger rioting in Tokyo and New York or who knows, you know? Uh, I remember when I saw that I was, I thought I was having thoughts like maybe space is completely different from what we even think it is. Yeah. You know, you know this, what? this sounds a little off base and I, I, I have my own reasons for thinking this, uh, but I think that space is an organism. Hmm. I think that it's uh, not only do I think of it as an organism, a living organism, I think it's sentient in some way that we don't understand. Hmm. That's interesting. Uh, but, you know, that. just my personal opinion. I, yeah. You could be right. Yeah. I don't know. One last question before we go here is, do you have any idea or an opinion on what their agenda is, what they are doing here, and even they may be too bland because there may be more than one type that are here. You know, God, I wish I knew. I, 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 and I really don't. I mean, I could speculate all day long, but mm -hmm. it, that's, that's it. It's only speculation. Uh, 
I think that there are more than one kind of species here because when I was on that ship, I only, I only have a couple memories. I mean, I just have flashes, but mm. I recalled there being more than one type of entity on board that ship. I saw a tall insectoid like thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I saw a six foot tall uh, humanoid like thing with a chalkish pinkish complexion. Mm-hmm. wasn't gray. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, no cartilage for ears or nose, just two, two uh, holes for nostrils, slit for a mouth. And he had black eyes that kind of wrapped around like a, like a pair of Ray-Bans. They weren't exaggerated like they are in the motion pictures, just, mm-hmm. uh, and sparse hair. Um, so obviously two different species of beings. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I think we're being visited by, uh, by more than one. Yeah. And that kind of ties into his statement about a galactic federation. Yeah. You know, I have another podcast with a gentleman that he would see UFOs a lot on the job. He was an oil driver, would drive oil trucks, go to the oil rigs, pick up oil and move them. And he kept seeing UFOs and he decided to bring a laser pointer, but like the astrology ones. And he started pointing it at the ship, messing around. And they came to his, according to him, they came to his house that night looking to see what he was up to and kind of froze him in his bed. But the ones that came to his house were four-legged creatures. But then he had some other ones that he had a woman that was kind of cat-like. And then another one was another thing. And the most extraordinary thing I thought he said was that they had somehow cloned him and they would transfer his consciousness to somewhere else and testing it out, I guess, projecting his consciousness onto his cloned body, wherever else that was, and trying to work wow. that body. Yeah, That's wow. on my podcast. You can check it out. There's only one male, so it's the guy there. And um, But that was a real interesting idea, yeah, cloning your body. So then he was saying that you know other people were using his body too. Crazy. Yeah. You but, know, I... I, I Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No. Uh, I, I was just going to say, I, I, I was told by the guys from TTSA mm-hmm. um, that I'm what's called a targeted individual. Mm-hmm. Lou Elizondo told me that. The medical doctor told me that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't know what a targeted individual was. Um, but he said some people are just chosen to have contact for their entire life. And he says nobody knows why. But mm-hmm. So I had experiences as a child. Yeah, uh, from four to seven. Another mm-hmm. experience when I was eleven. Mm-hmm. Then I had eleven years of nothing, and then at twenty-two, I nineteen seventy-seven, I was taken. Right. And in nineteen eighty-seven, mm-hmm. I was on a motorcycle ride and ended up missing two hours of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then throughout my life, I'll see UFOs. I, I mm-hmm. take pictures of UFOs. I got a lot of pictures of UFOs. Oh, and, awesome! Uh, yeah, I'd like to see those. I'll, I'll send you some. Well, uh, I'll be with my wife and I'll say, can you see that? She can't see it. Mm-hmm. If I take a picture of it, she can see it. Mm-hmm. But if I just point it out, she can't see it. You know, what's interesting is to piggyback on what you're saying. I wish I could remember the guy's name, but I think it's his name is Professor Jenkins or something. Anyways, the one, it's the same man that has done a lot, a lot of um, hypnosis on people and research. But he is saying that they don't come here and just see you once and give you a message like let's clean up the planet or something. They're not going to, they're not doing that. They're following people their entire life. Yes. 
So it sounds like you are having the same thing. And you maybe, have, yeah. maybe even other family members as well. Well, you know, my, um, my dad had this odd fascination with UFOs, but, you know, he would never talk about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, my sister, who uh, just passed away, she's 12 years older than I am. Um, when I published this book in 2018, she wouldn't read it. Mm-hmm. And she says, you know, the only thing that she would say is, I regret that whenever the, the lights used to come in the window of the house and we couldn't find you anywhere, that I couldn't have been a more help to you. Wow. So, yeah. So, thanks. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. And my other sister just says, I don't know what you're talking about. Wow. Wow. Well, Terry, this has been an amazing podcast. You have an extraordinary story. Um, And uh, I hope that we can have you back sometime and we can talk more about what's been going on the rest of your life. And even maybe, um, you know, even again, once you get your hypnosis again later, after all this COVID blows over and we can see what else we find out about your past, you know? Yes. Yeah. I'd like that. Mm-hmm. I'd appreciate that. For the people out there, if they want to find your book, where do they find it at? It's on Amazon. It's on Amazon. Uh, it's called Incident at Incident at Devil's Den. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's in Kindle uh, in paperback that has the photographs in the back. And then I also recorded an audio book in my own voice, for better or worse, uh, uh, that's available. Are you a private person or are you a public person? And if so, do you like you talk to people on Facebook or you, do people email you? Do you put that out there? Do you answer them? Or, or like I said, are you more yeah. private? Well, no, you know what I did was in the back of my book, there's an email address. Mm-hmm. Um, and I said, you know, look, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a doctor. But if you write to me and tell me about your experience, I'll, I'll write back to you. Well, I published my book in March of 2018, and mm-hmm. I had over 1,400 emails from people. Wow. From like that's... all over the world. Wow. I mean, South Africa, Australia, Austria, 11 different countries I've sold books in. So, uh, and I've responded to every single one of those. Wow. Um, but what's really great is I've become this inadvertent uh, UFO researcher now. Mm-hmm. Because I had these amazing stories from people. And out of the 1,400, I have a core group of about 400 that are just absolutely incredible. I mean, these stories are, uh, and all of people, I I pulled 30 of these best stories out. And I included them in my new book, which Mm. is uh, Devil's Devil's Den, The Reckoning. Mm -hmm. should be out in a week or so on Amazon. Oh, great. All right. Uh, But I've got some great stories from people. Um, So... You know, that, that's good to know. I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. And uh, I certainly don't seem to be unique in any way. There are a whole lot of people that have had um, experiences equal mm-hmm. to or greater than mine. Mm-hmm. And now that we know about your next book, that's a great reason to have you back. So we can talk about some of those other stories. It is. Yeah. All right, Terry. Well, I really appreciate you giving me this time today. I wish you the best. I wish you massive success on the Thank books. You. And um, I hope you have Thank a great you, evening. I, I will. I will. I've enjoyed myself very much. It's been my pleasure and hope to see you soon. All right. Have a good night. You too. Bye-bye.